This episode features Andre Vonchek, who is a photographer from the Czech Republic, and he has shot everything from portraits, landscapes, and uh, weddings to mainly being a street photographer, which then influenced him in his war photography that he started in 2017. So um, we, we failed to make an intro, but uh, that's who this is about, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I wouldn't even say I'm a photographer at the moment because I haven't really taken a good picture since August. <laughs> I haven't really even touched the camera since like November, so it's been a what while. You been up to? But normally just a photographer. Uh, recently, not much. Just staying at home because of all that's happening. Yeah. Playing Warzone with Sean Tech. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of Warzone. <laughs> we're we're going to be streaming tonight again. I'll be there. <laughs> we're streaming. We're streaming almost every night. Oh my god! Oh, yeah. I don't I'm not saying we're good at it, but you know, at least we're having fun. Yeah, that's all that matters. <laughs> um, so going back to, although you may not have taken a great photograph in August or since August, um, what is the corona covid experience like right now and are you in prague or are you in london in prague i've moved i moved here in august so yeah okay back to czech republic for good i think oh what Um, made you want to move there permanently versus uh, staying in london a couple of things we wanted to start a family and it's a lot easier and better to do it here we got better health care we got better schools i'm not bashing yeah, but no, it's totally understandable. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I can't, yeah, I can't blame you at all. <laughs> I live in the US, so. <laughs> there's oh, you're in the US. Yeah, so there's definitely Where some. Whereabouts? Uh, um, I'm in Southern California. Nice. So. That's, that's, that's got to be pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's nice for sure. It's just, it definitely. St- obviously will have its drawbacks uh, compared to uh, other countries as well. I mean, every country has its pros and cons. Oh, yeah. But, oh, definitely. Um, you know more so than everyone since you've been everywhere. <laughs> Not really. I haven't even left Europe. I've never actually left Europe, man. Well, I've been to a couple of countries, but yeah. Um, I'm getting, but, you know, I, haven't been, I haven't been everywhere, but it's on the list. I yeah, it's it's a work in progress. That's all it is. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so you said on your bio that photography, um, it turned into an obsession with freezing people's emotions and raw feelings. Does mm-hmm. this infer that you mainly shoot candid? And have you encountered a moment where you actually felt that posing them would be a better option? Uh, no, it's, it's always right. candid. Always yeah. candid. Like, uh, whenever... I shoot a post picture. That's just because I want a portrait or I find some nice light and I tell the person stand in this light. Okay. But that I just don't uh, use as my documentary or street work at all. Like nothing in my documentary or street work or like the photojournalism stuff is post. Everything's just candid as it's happening. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not affecting the scene just by being there. Yeah. Of course, the people know I'm there. Well, not all of the time, but you know, quite often they know I'm there, so they 
might be behaving a bit differently compared to if I'm not there. Yeah. But yeah, always candid. I feel like I'm cheating whenever I want, uh, whenever I like see a scene and I feel like, okay, you know, I could, I could tell him to stand over here or call him to look at me or just tell him to not look at me at all. But yeah, that would be cheating. That just doesn't feel right. No, I'm the same way. I just like to get everyone's take on it because I really don't see the benefit to posing people. Like, I understand, like, the normative way of, like, oh, these are how photos should look of people is people looking back at the camera, smiling, blah, blah, blah. But candid moments are, like, what's actually the moment, you know? (laughs) Exactly, exactly, yeah. If it's not candid, it's not interesting to me. I mean, I've done some portraits. I got a portrait section on my website. Yeah. But those were mostly just playing around with lights when I was still working in a camera shop and I had some pro photos or when I was just bored at home with my wife and we just set up a flash and just had some fun with those pictures. But apart from that, no, it's it's candid for me, always candid. Uh, Speaking of your portraits, uh, I was kind of curious, like, given that you shoot, like, documentary uh, work or reportage is how do you create stories with, uh, like, for example, Xena or Victoria, where the scene's, like, not right in front of you, where you could be like, oh, I can include this person's reaction, this uh, flag, like, all of these things into one frame to speak to the story, whereas in portraits you're having to create a story for that person. Yeah, uh, well, the big difference there is like in a portrait, you have to make the picture. You actually have to, you know, from start to finish, you have to create. Whereas, you know, anything else, you take the picture. You don't yeah. do anything. You just take the picture. Even with editing, I don't take anything out of the shot. If there's something annoying in there, I just don't use the shot. Um, if the light's not too good, you know, tough luck. You know, I got to work with what I have. Um, yeah. The only editing I do is it's just bit of color well take the color out and just highlights white some clarity and that's about it so it's always just yeah. about taking the raw moment that's happening and it's yeah like like you said like putting the flags in and that kind of stuff uh, it's it's a split second decision you always have to make the shot interesting like you have a person walking down the street and he looks cool but you cannot just take a picture of that person that's boring you got to incorporate yeah. it into the scene somehow. So either nicely framed, like something in the background, something in the foreground, some nice geometry, some harsh shadows, lights, or, you know, some interesting action happening. It cannot be just mm-hmm. an interesting person because yeah. there's nothing. It, there's, it's not saying anything. It has to be uh, framed somehow. At least just change the angle. Just go down low, like lie on the ground or just take a knee. Or just get up high, just get an interesting angle, or just do a silhouette against a bright, bright sky. Uh, bright sky. Just gotta make it interesting somehow. Otherwise, it's just another shot like you could have taken with your phone. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, and that's why I was pretty interested to see, because uh, everyone who knows you knows you obviously for the war photography. Yeah, fortunately, um, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I was shocked to see how blown away I was by your landscapes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I really like your landscapes. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I 
I think it's one of those, like, I think there was some compression to where I was like, I can't tell if the focus is all the way to the back or if it's kind of like cut off at a certain focal point. But um, yeah, if you're no, talking really... about uh, landscapes on the website, you know, those yeah. super wide ones, most of them were taken with the medium format Fujifilm with the GFX. Oh, okay. So yeah, definitely there's detail. <laughs> I had it on loan for two weeks with two lenses, and I just went to Scotland with it. And oh, okay, so all of them were in Scotland. Yeah, but some of the pictures, I when I was using the 23mm lens, I had a faulty lens. All the okay. edges were super blurry. And when you look at the oh. pictures, like, blown up, it really shows. But not all of the pictures. Yeah. Some, some of them came out all right. Uh, the picture with that big valley and that small white house in the middle, mm-hmm. that one I took with the X-Pro2. It's, uh, let me count it real quick, 18 exposures merged into one. Oh, wow. Into a big panorama. It's, uh, I think it's 140 megapixel image. <laughs> wow. And I had, it pr- <laughs> I had it printed about two or three meters long, hanging above a TV. And it yeah, it, it looks real nice when it's big. So yeah, there's detail in some of them, definitely. <laughs> yeah, <I'm, laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't call myself a landscape photographer. It's more of just like, you know. I went, you know, I went to Scotland. I absolutely love that country. It's gorgeous, and I just want to take pictures of the landscapes there. Yeah, I'm kind of curious uh, when you go on vacation or like you're doing more leisure time outside of the city. Is that what you're doing? Is kind of just like photographing landscapes or kind of just whatever interests that you? Depends. Where you're at? That depends. Like when I was going to Spain for the war photography training. I had a couple of days in uh, Ronda and in Malaga. So that's why I was just doing some street photography here and there. Um, just not too much because it felt pretty touristy and I don't like taking touristy shots. Yeah. And then the last time I went to Scotland, I just took this tiny point and shoot film camera that takes absolutely crappy images. <laughs> and I just took pictures of us having fun there, just camping, you know, cooking some meat on the fire, just chilling. And I didn't even take my X-Pro XT camera, nothing. I didn't take any like decent pictures. And I'm actually happy I did it this way because I was just concentrating on just being there and I didn't have to worry about, oh, should I take a picture of that? Should I carry my tripod now? Nah, I just didn't. Um, but when I go, yeah, it depends on the holiday. It depends on the location. Like if I go somewhere city, well, you know, like uh, when I was in London and I went to Prague for a holiday, I was just doing street photography left and right. Or the same as when I was going out in England in different cities, it just street photography left and right. But when you really want to relax, I just don't take my camera with me at all. I guess see how it's pretty beneficial to take a step back and just yeah, exactly. enjoy it. Yeah. So obviously I learned about you from Sean Tucker <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, of course, it was the Forgotten War and the Frozen War that caught my attention. Um, going beyond concepts surrounding war. And I was kind of shocked in your essays about the statistics that you put in there. And uh, kind of how that paints a bigger picture for everyone in terms of like what the situation really looks like. And I just kept going back to the question, like, how? How did it feel like going into a war zone to capture these photographs? How did you find which stories to tell alongside the series opening 
And mm. how has your perspective changed since that assignment? Honestly, the way it felt, nothing super different for me. I mean, it was uh, it was horrible. Like, uh, how to how to say this? Like for me personally, I wasn't scared. I wasn't like super excited or anything. I just was there to take those pictures and to make it out of there and get those pictures out and tell the story. So that way, it felt like pretty normal but what i saw there that was pretty bad like those people living in those conditions uh the civilians just being shot left and right or their livelihoods being destroyed that was pretty bad um the soldiers as well their morale was like super low because they they didn't see an end to this there's still no there's still no end to this now like they still don't know what's gonna happen in the next few years um but you yeah while while you're there like personally especially thanks to the training i was through um yeah i didn't feel scared or anything i just was there to you know it took me a long time to prepare for all of it it took me a lot of preparation a lot of money to actually make it there in the first place and while i was there i was like all right this took so much time and so much money to actually get here and try to tell these stories gotta do it gotta do the job now so yeah. I just didn't think about like you know bullets flying or mines on the ground or just explosions in the distance. Like, nah, I'm just here to just take these pictures and get out of here alive. Yeah, and don't so, piss off my wife by not coming back. <laughs> yeah, <I've, laughs> I, I saw that was a big factor. Is she yeah. used to it now that you've done it? Yeah, she kind of gave up on me. She now knows that okay. she, there's no talking me out of it. So if I, for example, just come up with an idea to go to Syria next year. I'll I'll go. <laughs> I was actually supposed to go last year, but it didn't work out. Maybe you'll have more opportunities after this is all kind of over, and then kind of see where to go from there. Yeah, we'll uh, see. I've been unemployed for the last two months, so it's been a bit tough. <laughs> yeah, that's um, the disadvantage of quitting your job just before a pandemic happens, because no one's hiring afterwards. True. <laughs> yeah. I lost one of mine, so I, I uh, that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's inevitable. Um, <laughs> you were talking about Venezuela and Sudan being a possible photography trip. I was just wondering if that was still in the. Oh works. yeah, I was planning. I was planning so many different projects, but it all came down to me not having enough finances, and I didn't yeah. really want to ask people to like donate or to to mm-hmm. Indiegogos or Kickstarters. Doesn't feel right. I did it last time. For the yeah. for the second Ukraine trip, I mean, I only got like what two hundred pounds out of it, which didn't uh, pretty much yeah. cover anything. It only covered the prints and the shipping costs for the people that actually donated. Okay. And I was actually happy that way because I didn't owe anyone anything, and I wasn't paid by anyone to actually go there. I was I just did the whole yeah. thing by myself. The first time that was much more expensive. That cost in thousands actually the the body armor the fixer the fixer was the most expensive part but yeah she was definitely worth every penny um after we, doing it a couple times have you ha, do you think fixers are reasonably charging or do you think oh. they kind of taking advantage of people's ignorance <laughs> depends like she <laughs> she considering where she was taking us and that she was going us with us everywhere like directly to the front lines to trenches she was there with us 
translating. She organized the whole thing. Like whenever we told her we wanted to speak to some specific person, she actually found a contact for that specific person and got us oh, a wow. meeting with him. And that's like military people, or she got us uh, access to the coke processing plant, or she got us access oh, to the volunteer fighters. She got us access with the with the civilians. And we didn't speak the language at all. I wasn't alone for the first trip. I was with this uh, guy from America. Um, and yeah, she got us everywhere. She was brilliant. And she only cost $150 a day plus travel and food, which was pretty good. Then when I was planning a trip to northern Syria, to Kurdistan and Mosul, I was contacting fixers over there. And of course, it's a hot zone. There's so many yeah. like, big name journalists there, CNN and, you know, Fox and all these kind of big names. And they're of just course. throwing money at these fixers. So they know they can charge a lot. And what yeah. sort of fixers were like, all right, I can take you to Syria, but it's going to be $650 a day. Cool. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's not happening, but I'm not going there without one because that's just a suicide mission. Yeah. But the second time I went to Ukraine, I just I figured, yeah, I can do this on my own. I've already been there once. I know how it works. And I was in touch already with those people I was going to spend time with. I just texted them on Facebook, like, hey, can I stay with you for two weeks? I just want to, you know, follow up on my story. And I was like, yeah, cool, man. Just, you know, we can give you a bunk in our barracks. You're going to have free movement along uh, across the base. And they took me out for a couple of, them, uh, a couple of missions with them. It was pretty cool the downtime in the barracks uh, was a different side of a uh, war to be photographed and in terms of like unconventional ways. But what really caught my attention was your ability to go into this war zone civilian area and photograph like the lives of people who still live uh, around this warfare. And I was just wondering like your from your first time to your second time, like did you end up seeing the same people in that area or no, uh, this the second time I didn't see any civilians. I was there just with the volunteer fighters. Oh. I actually I flew to Kiev. I took an overnight train to one of the uh, towns close by, got my press pass, and then they picked me up on the train station. And then the uh, when it was all over, I actually called a taxi to their base in Avdivka, right on the front line, and just took a taxi all the way back to. The train station and left so i've actually never met any civilians except two or three that came in with a truck full of supplies because they get like regular supplies from people around the country oh, okay. so, so that was it no no civilians on the second run unfortunately i wanted to go to visit the uh, people in the obitna village yeah. you know the shelled out village uh, the one where i took the picture of those three grannies that's what i was thinking of was that area yeah. Those were definitely more interesting. And they were really nice people, actually. I really liked them. But, yeah. With it being snowing and everything. Yeah, I just couldn't get there. There was no way of me getting there without a car, without a driver, without a fixer. Because I, yeah, yeah, there was, they didn't know any English. Like the group of people I was with, they had two English speakers. So I could talk to them. They were translating for me. Eventually, after those two weeks spending with them, we actually could communicate pretty easily with all the other guys because my oh, language okay. is pretty similar to Ukrainian. Oh. And I learned 
a bit of Ukrainian, a bit of Russian while I was there. So I was speaking English, Ukrainian, Russian, Czech to them. <laughs> Jeez. And we understood each other and hand oh gestures God. on top of that. And it worked. We actually wow. had some decent conversations with those people. Eventually, we ended up playing PUBG together as well. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, I most was... of them, most of them were just kids, man. Most of them were guys oh, okay. in their early twenties or even younger. Some were somewhere in their forties and older, but most of them were just kids. Okay, um, I was kind of shocked to see that during the downtime, you were saying like, "Yeah, everyone's just posting Instagram, just hanging out." <laughs> like, oh yeah, man, I had them. much better four G connection there than I had when I was living in London. <laughs> Oh my god! Like the internet there was amazing, and there was no data cap, so I could, you know, I could just stream oh YouTube or Netflix infinitely. It was amazing, like right on the front line. The only time it wasn't working was when there was a blizzard, and there was quite a few of those. Oh, wow. yeah. But other than that, yeah, it was, like, it was like a different world. You know, I'm from London. I was living in London, and I couldn't get signal in my own house, or I couldn't get signal while I was at work. And suddenly here, I'm like 500 meters or one kilometer away from a front line you yeah. know where i can see shelling at night or hear shelling at night and i'm on netflix <laughs> watching transformers <laughs> because there's nothing else to do <laughs> it's, it's so immersive <laughs> um, the, yeah exactly like yeah. the sound the, the, the sound background was pretty good for that <laughs> it, was, it was actually a pretty interesting like uh when i was telling my wife what, I, what we're doing like all day she thought I was like going to a spa because we were, we were drinking tea. We were drinking tea. We were just out in the snow. We are going to a sauna. They built their own sauna. Oh, man. And we were going to it like once every two days, sometimes more. And that actually really helped with the cold. Like usually you're, I was, I'm not a fan of cold. I don't like snow. I don't like cold no. weather. But after a couple of visits in, the, in their sauna, you know, I was just walking around minus 14 with a t-shirt on. Oh, my And God. I was doing fine. <laughs> so it, yeah, it. It was all right. It was. It wasn't too bad. Emily <laughs> <laughs> came out of it with a frozen tank, like a frozen T-shirt. Um, <laughs> what is the weather like in the summer? Is it like in terms of like? Oh, the exact opposite. This summer, it was. Um, there was this village uh, or small town. What was it called? I think it was Piski. And we went there with our fixer. We were visiting. Uh, uh, I think it was a battalion station that was like hidden underground to be covered from the shelling. They invited us in for lunch. And then we went for about an hour or two through a forest to frontline positions. And we had full gear on, so body armor, helmet, two cameras, lenses, oh you know, God. all that stuff. I mean, I carry just small Fujifilm mirrorless cameras. But you still have a lot of gear on. You have your first aid kit, you have you know, you have your water, you always have to have water on you. And it was 37 degree heat. I don't know how much is in Fahrenheit, but yeah, in degrees, it's in in Celsius, it's a lot. Our fixer, she almost collapsed. We just dumped all of our water on her at one point. So just, oh. just so she could cool down. So it was ridiculously hot. Yeah, I believe it's, uh, I don't want to say exactly but isn't it like... 37 is i think above 100 yeah it's there's which is probably not a, not much for california no but yeah no. it's it's a lot for europe especially like eastern or eastern or northern europe um, so it's 37 degrees uh celsius yeah yeah so it's 98 in fahrenheit 
Um, mm-hmm. It's funny because like where I grew up in Southern California, it's like the hottest place <laughs> with like the summers <laughs> reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> so it's like you're just in a car sweating and people's excuses oh it's a dry heat it's not humid and it's like it still feels like hell (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly oh so yeah i could only imagine inland i I definitely prefer the winter because you know i I can at least put an extra layer on or put a heater on yeah or just stand closer to a fire but in summer you know cooling down is much tougher than warming up is it one of those areas where it's hot during the day and then at night it cools down a little bit. Uh, no, it was hot during the night as well. Okay. Like we were staying in this house of this lady that had uh, just freshly built, not even finished house on the outskirts. And at night it was so hot that I actually had to fix it as well. We just got out of bed and we just went, just lie down on the roof. Just no covers, nothing. Just lie down on the roof and just sleep there. And just listen to the shelling in the distance because it was so hot under you know in the rooms. Yeah, just couldn't sleep. Oh my god! Yeah, I'd I'd be up there with you guys. <laughs> I can't do heat anymore. <laughs> uh, what is the best lesson you learned like from these experiences of having to, uh, not even having to photograph war, but wanting to photograph war? Um. Because as many people mm. may or may not know, you do this as a hobby, not as a <laughs> like, oh. A yeah, thing. it's not a job. Yeah. It's, it sounds weird to say, calling it a hobby, but it is. Yeah. Because I'm not getting paid for it. I'm actually paying for it myself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't done it in a long time. Like in January, it's going to be two years since my last trip somewhere. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. Um, you did it in 2017, didn't you? Yeah. Um, this one, it's 2017 and 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first thing I learned in the winter time is I carried about six packets of silica gel in my camera bag. It wasn't enough because when you come from the outside and you go inside, your cameras fog up so much. It's ridiculous. Like when you're the temperature difference was 35, 34 degrees yeah. from minus 14 to plus 20 in wow. the inside. And then once you get inside, your camera is unusable for the next hour or two. So you can't take any pictures. And then when you go back out, all the humidity and moisture on top of the cameras just starts freezing up on the inside. Yep. So then the cameras just start getting absolutely useless. And I think I kind of ruined the viewfinder in one of them. But that's a technical thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I've learned per se. I don't know how to answer this. It it could literally just be, yeah. I I learned I can't sleep inside uh inside the room. It's too fucking hot. <laughs> I gotta lay on the roof. <laughs> I mean, I live in Czech Republic. We have the same here, and in London, it can be the same as well. It's pretty much the same climate. Okay, is it like across the board in terms of like where you've been? It's kind of. Um, is it just because it's? like same hemisphere or something that the climate stays yeah the same. just just the wind just the winters there are tougher than here but that's because we're closer to the sea in, Lo- in um, london it's in london and in prague uh, yeah but i don't know what i would say i've learned there's few things i've learned actually like some people can be happy to see you there taking pictures and telling their story 
But more often than not, people are not happy to see you there and they're tired of photographers coming in and taking photographs. There were a couple of building blocks that we went into that were shelled out where civilians have died. And we went there, the, the fixer just showed us like what happened there and was telling us what's going on. And the civilians were kicking us out. They were like, just get out of here. You're not helping anything. This has been going on for five years or four years. Yeah. Nothing has changed. And you just keep coming and taking pictures like every every you know, couple of months. Some photographer comes in there and they're just tired of it. Yeah. So some you you, you got to know the boundaries of who you can talk to, who you can take pictures of. We were attacked by one of the soldiers because we were taking pictures of a shut up tank. Because he thought that we're taking pictures of For the, enemy. the background behind the tank, oh. so they could see, you know, where is where where where's what uh, like placed, like where they have their BTRs or oh. where they have their gun placements. It's like, no, mate, don't worry. You know, we're not gonna give away any positions. Do no one's gonna know what where exactly the picture's been taken. Some of the guys didn't want their faces shown because some of them fighting against the you know against the separatists were Russians. Yeah. So they had families in Russia and they didn't want to be shown on the pictures. So you have to learn how to frame those people without their faces you know, showing or without anything that would recognize them. So you couldn't, you couldn't show any tattoos of some of the guys. Is there a one photo? So if I were to ask you to share one photo that encapsulates a war itself, what photograph do you think you choose? Oh, well, uh, no idea. Uh, let me have a quick look. What do I have here? Because it doesn't work as just one photo. It's a full-on story, and one photo can never actually tell the whole story. Not yeah. even a set of photos. Like when you look at the article, the photos themselves, I don't think they would work without the actual writing. That's why I wrote those articles for it. Yeah, it, it just it just didn't feel right for it to just be just be the pictures. Because they can be so misinterpreted that you can just get the wrong picture out of it. Yeah, I don't think there is a single picture I would. I would um, for the start of the war, like the first few years, I think a good picture would be those photographs on the wall of that girl doing, uh, what was it? How do you say it in English? The gymnast girl that oh. turned sniper Oh, when she yeah. was like 17. I know what because that's talking about. A, that was that was happening a lot in the beginning of the war. Just civilians just picking up guns, just random people. Like the commander of the of the battalion I was staying with for the second time, he was in his twenties, twenty one, twenty two. He was leading guys in their forties. He was wow. their commander, and he was studying art, painting before the war started. And then it started, so he just picked up a gun and you know, yeah, went for it. And most of those guys did. That's just regular civilians. Now that Ukraine has got its own army, they don't want those volunteers there anymore. But the volunteers don't want to leave. So it's kind of like a symbiosis between the two. I mean, not to throw <laughs> civilians that are against like the photographs of them being like fed up, but um, what would make them any different from not joining? Like the volunteers, like if you're like, oh, like I just want this to stop, like, do you think it'd be better to take on the position of like waiting it out or kind of joining the volunteers or? 
Well, they, you know, they got their lives. Yeah. Uh, there's people that are working at the Coke plant. They got to, you know, they got to oh, so support their families. Yeah. Okay. Or there is, they're just, they're just older people, retired people. Mostly the people uh, like in that Obitne village, uh, most of them were in their 60s, 70s or 80s. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's plenty, you know, everyone's got their role. Someone's just, uh, someone's a fighter. Someone's there just to be a civilian and yep. do other stuff. They got to keep the lives going, you know? Yeah. I wasn't sure if it would be like, if it was one of those like standstills because of just like everything going on to where it's like, is it even possible to like go to your regular routine while this is all going on? Or is it more like it's, it's slowly moving to a regular routine. Like when I was there last time, well, the first time actually, when I was there, they had their first ever festival since the war started. Oh wow! Uh, it was a day of the steelworker festival. I think yeah, there are some pictures in the in the article as well for it on the bottom uh, with the kids in the fountain and stuff. So they're slowly you know, returning back to the normal with a war raging on still and countless like landmines and unexploded ordnance still laying around the town. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's what people do, you know, they adapt. They still want to live normal. So even if it's taken, if it's taken this long and it's been taking you know, going on for years, they cannot just be hiding in a cellar for years and just, you know, bite their nails and wait for it to end. They just keep going on. Yep. Um, I saw that you were taking some photos around uh, the areas that might show people who are fighting for like that independence, such as Ukrainian poet and artist uh, Tarash uh, Shevchenko. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I was wondering, is that kind of a, a main leader for that influence or is it just one of many that people go well, to? One, one, yeah. Uh, that was most uh, mostly for the volunteers because the volunteers I was with, they are called the right sector, yeah, which is a pretty far right uh, government uh, party. Okay. Plus, they have the volunteer corps with them, and yeah, they're that's a whole different topic. They they are different, I would say. Yeah. Um, a couple of them were like straight up Nazis. Like okay. I said, I talked about it in my article as well. Uh, when they were doing like the Nazi salute at each other, had swastika tattooed on their bodies. Um, they explained it to me in a couple of ways. Some of them just absolutely hate anything Russian. Mm-hmm. And they just despise Russians so much. And they know that Russians hate anything like Nazi. That's yeah. why they do it. But, you know, dozen people, dozen different opinions there. So... I just got opinions from a couple of them, not from all of them. Can't really say much more for that. Yeah. Um, do you think after you came back and um, COVID started, uh, do you think your street photography with COVID, because I saw you take a few photos with people like wearing masks and everything, did that uh, was that shaped by your ability to photograph war? Because it seems like emotions at the forefront for what you need for reportage. And I think it could just provide a valuable lesson to translate to the other areas of your photography. I would say it's more the other way around. Uh, the fact I've been shooting street photography like 
over and over for the last four four years, five years. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's twenty twenty already, so almost six or seven years. Wow. Um, no, five years. Uh, that you know, I've been practicing just taking pictures, working the cameras and the composition, and just quick reflexes, and that's what allowed me to work in the war zone with a camera quicker. Rather okay. than the other way around, being in the war zone and being able to take normal pictures thanks to that. So that's why I do mostly street photography. It's just a practice in composition, in storytelling, in uh, quick reflexes, in you know trusting my camera to do what it, I need it to do. Yeah. And that way I know when I go somewhere, I know I can get the shot if I want to. And if I don't get the shot, it's my fault. It's not the camera's fault. It's just my fault. Because I know there were a couple of shots that I absolutely would love to have, you know, clicked, but I didn't. I messed it up or my camera fucked up and it was absolutely useless. Yeah. Um, You're still a witness to it, though, so at least there's that. It's the same with the, it's the same with weddings. Yeah. Like thanks to those, you know, all those years of street photography, I, I can shoot weddings pretty comfortably now. Before I was mostly panicking, like, shit, what do I do now? Like, what do I take now? Yeah. Uh, where do I go? Like, what do I frame? But now I'm just walking around casually with one camera in hand, maybe the other one on my back if I need a different lens, but mostly just one camera in hand, a drink in the other hand. So I blend in with the guests and I just take candid shots of what's going on. Like the last wedding I was on, the brides, uh, they both had no idea where I was. And they were actually had speeches at the end of the wedding thanking oh, everyone. God. And they were thanking me. And I was like, thank you, Andre, for being here and taking pictures. But where are you, by the way? And I was standing right in front of them. On my, I was on my knee taking pictures of them oh doing God. a speech. And I was like, oh, shit, there you are. <laughs> That's the best. They couldn't see me the whole wedding. And then when they finally saw the pictures, they could actually see the wedding again. Because, you know, wedding is a super stressful day for you. And you don't really yeah. get to enjoy it until you actually look at the pictures. Yeah. I've photographed a few weddings as well. So I can really... <laughs> um, and I was kind of curious that with you photographing weddings and photographing war is that kind of creating a balance between this like um idea of like love and hate and uh did it i was also curious who photographed your wedding <laughs> and did it oh, meet man, your that expectations was such, <laughs> that was such a long process that was such <laughs> a long process my wife hated me for that at that time <laughs> It was horrible. I just couldn't settle for a photographer. Like this one, oh, I don't like his style. Oh, I don't like this one. Only oh, shoots in color. And I don't like this one's style. And we finally settled on this girl. And she did an amazing job. So it, it took a long time. Like the photographer, it was what, two or three months only before the wedding? Before we got a oh, photographer? It, it was a year of just you know looking for someone decent. I wanted to actually get a photographer who would only shoot on this like old school film camera, like a Graflex or something, mm-hmm. because the the wedding was set in nineteen twenties. Oh what! But we eventually, <laughs> you know, we eventually just gave up on that idea wow. and just got a girl with a five D Mark III, and that was it. Okay. Um, yes, but yeah, she yeah, that was being a photographer and shooting weddings, then finding someone to shoot your wedding. I. Wanted to shoot it myself at right. you know at one point in time. I was just yeah, I'm gonna just take a camera and just do selfies myself. 
<laughs> I figured that'd be the most frustrating experience is hiring a photographer and not meeting your expectations for your own wedding. You're like, God damn it. Like I could have done this myself. <laughs> yeah. She she was super intimidated as well because she knew I was a photographer and she saw my work. Yeah. Because I had it as a signature in my email when we were contacting her. And she was like, I can just send you the raw files afterwards. You can edit them any way you want. And I was like, no, don't, don't worry. It's your work. You do what you want to do. It's, you know, I, I would hate it myself if someone wanted my raw files yeah. to edit them. So just you do you and, you know, I'm sure it's going to come out right. And it did. It, it really worked. I was going to ask you that because uh, I get that all the time is, can you send me raw files when they have no, like they literally don't no. know photography? <laughs> exactly. Like, Fuck you if you want my raw files. It's like asking a chef, can you send me your ingredients? Yeah. It's like, piss off. <laughs> I was like, why? Raw files don't leave my possession ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like giving away your negatives. Yeah. Why would you do that? that exactly. I've been starting doing more, more film photography recently as well. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, so you were photographing on mirrorless cameras during uh, the war zones, but uh, you said you convert from color to black and white. I was wondering, do you shoot on color film then? Or are you shooting in color digital and reverting into black and white then? Well, I, the beauty of the mirror, mirrorless cameras is, you know, even when you shoot raw, you can still set the pictures to be black and white in camera. So you can see, you see them okay. black and white as you shoot because you got electronic viewfinders. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. But the raw files got all the color info in it. Okay. Plus, it's Fuji cameras. So the raw file has the Fuji color profiles saved in it as well. Uh, so when I edit in Lightroom, I can still apply okay. like the Acros film simulation or the Acros with red filter on it if I want the skin tones to pop. Oh, okay. Or thanks to it, you know, I can just convert it to standard black and white and then go to the color sliders. And you can still adjust the brightness of like skies and foliage and skin tones by sliding the colors, even though it's already black and white. Oh. So yeah, that, I shoot raw, but I eventually just turn everything black and white, except few pictures. Like every once in a while, I, I take a shot somewhere out in the street that just doesn't work in color as much. I mean, it doesn't work in black and white as well as it works in color. So I just leave that one in color. And it's like one in a thousand on my Instagram, I think. Yeah. Wasn't sure. Have you ever heard of the photographer Richard Moss? I heard a name. Because uh, he did infrared war photography. Oh, yeah. That's why I know the name. Oh, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. I was just. That was amazing. Yeah. I was just curious to know if you knew about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like he was shooting in Africa, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was. Yeah. Wow. That's some amazing work, man. It's oh. definitely, I think, an out of the box. No one's done it before and i don't think no one's right. done it since and it just looks stunning i don't think like, i love anyone could black and it. white work from <laughs> yeah i love black and white black and white work from like salgado or mccullen because i don't yeah. think anyone does black and white as well as these two but his color infrared yeah that's just that's a different that's just something else um and then i was uh looking through your street work and i like your use of depth of field on literally everything that you do where like in war yeah. photography, it's like foreground, background, middle ground, like there's always something. And so for me, like the war photo yeah. was the guy smoking a cigarette behind a clothesline with a soldier blurred in front, if you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, it was in the first one, I think. But um, yeah, it was just to talk about that 
technique and also like that photo specifically i just really liked i always i always try to have something in my foreground something in the middle ground and something in the background for okay. the, like these documentary shows even for street like doesn't work always in street but like 90 percent of the time when i have f2 lens or when i have f1.2 lens that's where it stays oh like i didn't buy 1.2 lens to shoot it at f8 so true <laughs> i like my lenses wide open but sometimes it just covers too much of information going on so um most of the story in Donbass, the second story, I shot with my 23 millimeter lens. And yeah, that gets a lot of information in the frame and you don't want all of that blurred. Yeah. So that's why I start stopping up or stopping down to like F5, 6, F8 to get more info in the frame. Except a lot of time I spent indoors in their barracks or well, yeah, it was building with some bunks and it was dark. It was really dark. So I had to shoot like wide open all the time. Uh, super high ISO, yeah. super low shutter speeds of long shutter speeds. So most of the pictures you see taken from the inside, like the birthday party where they, you know, making the cake, they're shaking their hands and playing uh, the games together. Yeah, That's with my X-T1. So that's six years old, seven years old camera. Uh, with a 23 f2 lens. Shot at f2. Maximum ISO the cameras was capable of. So that was 6400. And shutter speeds were in 40s, sometimes 30s or 20s. And I was just hoping that the guys wouldn't move too much. Yeah. Like you can see them when they're shaking hands, that their hands are blurred out because they're moving. But I had no other option. It was just too dark. And I don't want to use flash. I just can't stand using artificial lighting for candid scenarios. It ruins the moment completely. Yeah, I think artific artificiality breeds artificiality. <laughs> yeah. Oh. There's actually plenty of occasions where I shot at high ISOs, even at a bright day outside, just because I wanted fast shutter speeds. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when they are setting up the, the mortar launcher in the snow or moving the truck out of the snow that was stuck, you know, it's a bright you know, day. It was like 12 a.m., no, 12 midday. There wasn't any sound. Like, it was uh, like, what's it called? Snow blindness, that you couldn't see the horizon because of how white the uh, snow and the sky was. Yeah. But my ISO was 6400 because I just wanted the. Uh, wow. <laughs> I just wanted a fast shutter speed. So uh, that's so up there. That's why. And to be honest, with the Fuji cameras, I love the way they look at high ISO anyway. Oh, okay. It just looks like film grain, especially in black and white. So I just don't mind. I just bump the ISO up. Usually I have the camera set to auto ISO from 200 to 12,800, which is the min max range. And yeah. I don't care. I just don't care about the ISO at all. I just have it set to auto. And if it needs to go all the way up, yeah, just go all the way up. I don't care. Just keep my shutter speed decent. Yeah. I've heard a, because uh, I was shooting concerts or music photography for a while, and I was told that Sony Alpha cameras are really good for low light scenarios uh, of like oh, indoors yeah, yeah. and stuff because of that. Um, so that would be my next camera after what I usually shoot on. Because <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The A seven three is amazing. Okay, like, uh, cool. The low light performance on that is ridiculous. That's what I'm looking Sean to get. Sean has two of them. He's <laughs> 
Yeah, Sean has two of them. He's been using them for a while. And all his videos you see on his YouTube, even the one with Josh that he shot at night. Yeah. That just that's just the A7 III handheld. Wow. It's beautiful. Like there is no noise there. It looks really nice. Um wouldn't get the R's if you want uh high if you want low noise. The R's, the high megapixel count ones, they don't do too well okay. in low light. Well, they do alright, but not as well as the A7 III itself. Okay. No, it's good, I know. But if you do, if you like doing black and white, and if you like yep. printing, yep. <laughs> I couldn't recommend the Fujis enough. Okay. There's this picture from the second story of uh, Yusef, the guy smoking a cigarette next to a monitor because he it was his duty to you know be on guard that evening. Yeah, I saw that photo. That picture was with the, with the XT1, uh, maximum ISO again, sixty four hundred, I think. Oh wow, it so doesn't even rainy, look but that bad. I have it. I have it printed out. I have it printed out. Uh, I think A three, A two size. Okay. It's pretty big, and it looks amazing. It looks like a film film photo when it's printed out. Oh, large. that's awesome. Yeah, the Fuji Fuji grain in black and white looks real nice, because even in color, because uh, the grain on those cameras, it looks like film grain. It doesn't look like digital noise. Okay. And and you get luminance noise not color noise as well that's makes a that makes a big difference i was going to say uh printing on glossy paper does it help to create that silver gelatin effect uh, that comes with printing fuji noise or do you think uh i either print it just jiggly okay so matte paper on jiggly or c type oh yeah which C-type. is <laughs> yeah c type looks nice i got this massive print well two massive prints in my house flat uh one of them is in c-type and it looks like it's been done through an enlarger wow on uh, actual because it is pretty much actually like light sensitive paper that is printed on and it looks real nice it loses a bit of contrast with c-type but that you know for some pictures it works really well other pictures when i want them to be super punchy and contrasty i do i use ink for jiggly um speaking of prints uh i saw you had a solo exhibition um is that oh, yeah. is that what kind of prints did you, or how did you approach making that, your prints for that? That was it. Uh, it was uh, Jiggly and C-type mix, okay. depending on the picture. Uh, some of them were just pretty small, like A5, A4 size. The biggest ones were like A1, I think, two of them. And I had them framed, actually, by a friend who's a professional framer. Uh, was it Fred? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you read the story, didn't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, his work's amazing, man. Uh, he actually framed that big three meter print of that landscape and now he has it in London. I gave it to him. That's awesome. So he said, he said like one day when I'm going to make it, I'm going to you know, have a name as famous as Don McCullough. That picture's oh. going to make him a fortune. I was like, yeah, you're a gambler, man. That's not going to happen. <laughs> hey, you never know. <laughs> as far as history has told us, it's either you know your connections or you die that's that's when you become famous yeah yeah i'm gonna end up like uh what's her name when she was discovered just a year before she died for street photographer um vivian meyer yeah vivian meyer exactly um and then i was curious when you're submitting a solo exhibition how did you know which photos to present to the public where you've seen the horrors of war and also, there's so many ass 
aspects to photograph such as like the civilian aspect the volunteer aspect the landscape oh no uh that the, the exhibition was happening before i ever went to work oh okay <laughs> i was like that was just that was yeah that was just street photography and protest photography like around england was that the dover riot yeah yeah yeah, yeah some dover some london and then mostly street mostly street it was actually a pretty successful one like the first day we sold out the bar oh wow but then the the following days i wouldn't be able to tell you how many people came in but it yeah it was packed on the first day it was nice opening days it was nice to talk nice. to the people about those pictures like plenty of people wanted to hear the stories behind the pictures and it's nice to tell people like what was happening while i was taking the picture because mm-hmm. it just well how many times i'm gonna say picture but it really <laughs> <painted the> picture. <laughs> um and well, then I guess that leads to the question of if you were to have an exhibition of these war images, how would you know which ones to select? Would you select the more truthful, like horrors of war or kind of tell use one photograph to tell each scene? Or how would you go about that? I was working on an exhibition for Estonia and there was about there was supposed to be a tour of my uh, war photography pictures around Estonia around the museums because I have a friend whose dad is like a curator or something. Yeah. And I was working on it. I had it all prepared with the texts, the prints, everything. Well, I had the prints digital. I haven't printed them yet. Mm-hmm. And I was really working on it. And most of the pictures I used were from the were from the article. But I didn't want them to be, you know, too repetitive because if people read the article, they already saw the pictures. So I added some pictures that no one's ever seen before. I still have plenty of those mm-hmm. just to make it a bit more interesting than just the uh, online versions. Yeah. And it was pretty much, it just followed the story that I already wrote, oh, which okay. is written a bit differently with more detail or with less detail, just to make it more entertaining for exhibition or more interesting, not entertaining. Yeah. And yeah, to just make it in less pictures because the article has got like, what, I don't even know, 40, 50 images. <laughs> yeah. In it. Whereas the exhibition had per story, there was two stories, and per story it was 20. So I really wow. had to narrow it down. Yeah, that really is. Harry. Which is tough to do. Like I came back with two or 3,000 images for wow. those two weeks. And I had to narrow it down to 50, which is the toughest thing oh I've ever God. done. I printed every single one of the edited. I, I first culled them down to maybe 400. I edited all of those. Then I culled it to maybe 300. I printed all of those to six by fours, laid them all out on the ground at home and just made a story out of them. Wow. Um, yeah, I heard uh, when you print them out, it's like it's easier to curate the sequencing if you're like moving physical oh, copies. Much easier. I learned that from Eric Bouvet, one of the one of the guys on the war photography training. He's a really oh. good photographer. And yeah, he taught us that just you know, if you need to put a story together or if you need to, uh, you know, if you need to be your own editor, just print all the pictures out and lay them out and have a look at them. Just look at them for an hour or two and then start working on the story. Yeah. So that's why I have these massive two stacks of pictures printed <laughs> out. Um, and so with comparison to the Dover riot of shooting these 300,000 people in Prague, um, but that's all happening within one day versus or in terms of um, when you were photographing 
Um, I'm assuming that's happening all in, within one day, and then you're shooting these war zones for about two weeks. How does the goal mm-hmm. goal of the series change with the advent of time? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the second time when I was in Ukraine, I knew I was going to be there for two weeks and on this one base with this one group of people. So I have time. I don't have to worry about it. Like when I was shooting the Dover protest or when I was shooting the big rally in Czech Republic with those 300,000 people, you know, it's just one day. It was just one thing. So I was just running around, just taking pictures of whatever I found interesting, which to be honest, there wasn't a lot interesting. It was just the same people with the same kind of banners and flags. So you can only take that picture so many times. But I did eventually get some good stuff out of it. Whereas with the Ukraine, I knew I was going to be there for a long time. So, well, if you can consider two weeks a long time. Uh, so for the first few, like three, four days, I barely took a picture. I was just there just getting to know the guys. I was mm-hmm. just spending time with them, chatting, watching TV with them, playing games, just helping them out with like cleaning up snow, uh, going to the sauna with them and just chilling. And, you know, once they were slowly getting used to me more and more, I was walking around with my camera and I snapped a picture here, I snapped a picture there. At the start, they still were noticing it and they were like posing and smiling and, you know, doing the V sign with the fingers. And eventually there's like, oh yeah, he's going to be for a while. Fuck it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to do anything anymore. I don't care about him. And I said, that's what I want. Just don't care about me. <laughs> and that's where I could finally take the pictures of them actually being themselves. Yep. And if I was there for longer, I probably wouldn't take pictures for the first two weeks. If I was there for a month, for the first two weeks, I just wouldn't touch the camera. I would just be with them the whole time. I would carry it on me and maybe snap one or two a day. But I just would want them to just get used to me as one of their own in there at that time. Because when I was there the first time, we visited so many locations, so many different people and so many different positions that you could only spend so much time at one place. And when we came, for example, to the village with those grandmas, we only spent about an hour there. So you just walk in with two cameras around your neck and start taking pictures. It's not natural. It's not definitely as natural as I would like it to. Yeah, it feels yeah, almost a little exactly. bit forced because we of the We just couldn't time. spend that, that much time with them. But I didn't really know the story when I was going there the first time. I didn't know where to go. So the first time was pretty much just like dipping a tone for me so I would know what I want to do more in the future and what I would get access more to the future. So that's when I met the volunteer fighters. They added me on Facebook, actually, eventually on Instagram. So we were just chatting and that's how I finally get access to stay with them after, you know, in the, in January. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, yeah to build those connections and sure it was a little bit more comfortable going back the second time i mean it was scarier because i was all Um, on my own i didn't have anyone watching my back and now that you're stuck at home i saw that your photo mode has now taken on photographing red dead redemption 2's photo oh yeah (laughs) in-game photos (laughs) i get gorgeous man it's absolutely gorgeous (laughs) have you seen the announcement for the ghost of tsushima game there's going to be a photo mode as well. Yes. And you can actually play the whole game in black and white, like in a Kurosawa movie. Yeah. Oh, man. Excited. Oh, but, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's coming out a week before my birthday, so hey. I know what I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, like the photo mode in Red Dead, it all started with me, Sean, and Jeffrey. Uh, you know Jeffrey? Um, he's the one doing lives with Inst- with Sean a lot oh, on Instagram. He's got yeah. He's got a couple of his podcasts as well. Really nice podcast. Yeah, I've, I think I just um, saw them get on a live stream together yesterday <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Jeffrey's a really good podcaster. Um. So yeah, the three of us we just wanted to just roam the world of Red Dead just on our horses or just <laughs> you know fish and just talk photography. Yeah. Just chat photography, but it all just kind of like once we discovered there are cameras in there, <laughs> it just became photography. Was... <laughs> exactly. And then once I discovered there's photo mode in single player. That's like a full on uh, photo mode. Yeah. That's where I actually opened the second Instagram account. And I'm just doing like in-game photography in there. I don't know if you've seen the second Instagram account I've got. No, I haven't. I didn't know there was one. Yeah. Um, let me let's see if I can send it here for you. Or oh, us chat here. And I've actually been contacted by a couple of people already that they wanted to do interviews with me about it. So there was oh, a, really? there was an there was an article about it in Wired. Oh what? And there's an article. Yeah, and there's an article coming out in Financial Times as well. Wow. Dang. Yeah, it's it's pretty like um, Jim Milton. name Cr- Craig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you finished the game? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so I'm not spoiling. No. It, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just got a message from someone today, like, "Hi, Jim. Really nice pictures." I was like, um, "I'm not Jim, but thanks, man." <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Jim Milton. Yeah, it's the next best thing now that we can't yeah. really go out. Well, now we can finally. The ban, the, the lockdowns have been lifted in my country. Uh, the state of emergency has been lifted. Shops are opening. It's all getting back to normal. Like our country handled it really well. We didn't even get up to 10,000 know, infected, wow. I think. Yeah. And uh, the fatalities were minimal. We, our, our guys, you know, they, they cut it in the stem like real quick. Yeah, is that how you say it? Crowded in stem or nipped it in stem? Um, I yeah, um, I I can't English today, man. I have the dumb. Uh, your English is perfect, so don't even worry. Because <laughs> um, I can't speak four other languages like you. <laughs> I can't speak four other languages. I can mumble. I can mumble a bit in other languages. I can speak Czech and English. Okay. I can mumble in maybe like Spanish, Russian, Ukrainian, and maybe a bit of German, but just like the basics. <laughs> I could. I could speak in English and conversationally in Spanish, but I can mumble in oh, maybe right. Korean. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's different. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It's just me and Eastern culture. That's where I want to do like my travel photos. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but it just interested me. But I really like your... Uh, I like that the idea of photography does like translates seamlessly even just in game like looking at the photos on the account itself it's like yeah it's my it's exactly my style yeah i just wouldn't take it any other way and (laughs) it utilizes everything still the foreground middle middle and background even the first image you posted it's like the specs are supposed to be this uh foreground middle and then with the woman in the background exactly like wow um and what I love about it is it actually I didn't realize you were doing this until recently, but I my next ex 
well not my next exhibition but my next project is doing this actually <laughs> i'm uh currently building a, a pc to get red dead redemption 2 so i can harness the best screen grabs i can get from the game and then uh create a series yeah, out of it you know, let's you do like 1080p and not not the best resolution yeah <laughs> yeah I'll, i only i only have the og playstation you know this the old school one the first yeah. one that came out but i'm i'm already that's what i'm, I'm playing on like, don't even worry <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm already looking up for the ps5 yeah no i totally get that um yeah I'm but the background same. foreground midground i always have to have something there like if you know if I see someone interesting just standing around, I walk around them and I just look for like a window. I could take a picture of the guy through a reflection or through the other side of the window. So I have something in the, you know, framing him or just a person standing. So he's just silhouetting and framing the other dude. Just, I always want to have something in, in foreground. I think it's yeah. becoming a bit of a cliche for my photography, but yeah. Well, I think it may serve as cliche, but it also serves as just like another technique like composition and lighting and everything where it's like it's used over and over again because it's you like it works. <laughs> um, yeah, I used to do different kind of cliches like my pictures are super flat, like like uh, contrast wise, like old paint, like no, like uh, composition wise. Oh, OK. Like like you're looking at the theater from the middle row, just super flat. Oh, OK. Like there was no depth to it, and I liked them that way. That was that's my first first few like uh, street photography pictures. Oh. They were really flat, but they worked. I liked them that way. Um, don't know if I can find an example at the moment because I've deleted most of them with my website. I still have them in my book. Yeah, I actually published a book. Oh. <laughs> I will yeah. definitely link that. <laughs> no, 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 you won't because there is only one copy in the world. Oh. And that's the one I have at home because oh. the printing on Blurb is so expensive that oh. I wouldn't expect anyone to ever buy. Oh my God. I, a <laughs> hundred, this is an issue that I came up with yesterday uh, that <laughs> one of my friends wanted to buy the photo book I made from Blurb and they were like that can't be the right price right and I'm like it is because yeah. it's insanely expensive <laughs> yeah I was I was like showing my friends that I have a book on you know on Blurb and it's like 50 pounds it's like just just don't buy it because you can buy you can buy Genesis from Salgado for 10 pounds less <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> like, and it looks better and it's got much better pictures and a better story and it's Salgado for fuck's sake yeah that, that's why um i've been trying to find other retailers with the same quality without like having such a big price market like i, I like what sean's doing like the prints of his books they're yeah. much cheaper uh, i was thinking of doing something like that but i don't think there's a market for my book at the moment i think i was a bit too hooray when i tried to print <laughs> and get the one out. Um, even though i've got i mean like hundred times more followers now than I had when I printed the first one. But I don't I still don't think there's the market for it. I'll still just keep taking pictures, still keep making stories just like a hobby. And then maybe like I don't know, 20, 30 years later, I'll put them all together in one big yeah body of work. And then I'll print I'll put it out on the market. I mean if you want, we uh, can there's still those one offs that you might get a sale on blur <laughs> regardless of <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand where you're coming from, but 
we'll we'll put it in <laughs> so we can show people what you're up to. <laughs> I don't think it's available. I think oh, I took it down. Took it down. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Let me see if it's still in my bio. No link to it. No, it's gone. Damn. I replaced it with interviews oh, okay. on my website. So that's, oh, that's right. the one with Sean, with Jeffrey, with Neil James and Kevin Mullins and Fujicast. And the next one is going to be from you. Hey. <laughs> Your photo. Oh, yeah. So I just had like a few more. Um, so Elliot Erwitt, uh, are you familiar with him? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, your photos uh, kind of some of your photos remind me of him because of the serendipitous moments that he would capture. Like you kind of had the same. Oh, wow. uh, nice. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> have you have um, you have you seen the Minamata? I don't think so. They're they're, they're making a movie about him called Minamata about the incident. Oh no, I I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's a biograph, like a biopic about him. Oh. Oh, okay. no, it's Eugene Smith, not Elliot Irwin. Oh. Sorry, my bad. I, I still... Eugene Smith is still amazing. Oh. <laughs> it, it already came out. Oh, shit, I need to see it. Uh, you know who played Eugene Smith in that movie? No. It up. Who did? Apparently, it's really good, yeah. It's about Minamata, which was the, you know, the massive... Like horrible, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know what it was. Um, and <laughs> yeah, obviously, it already came up. Obviously, your combat work uh, serves to follow Eugene Smith. Yeah, I like Eugene Smith's work a lot. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of photo- I mean, when I started, when I you know got on this like photography road, yeah. I didn't know any photographers at all. I didn't know Bresson. I didn't know Salgado. I didn't know any of these big names. Yeah. Only like a couple of years ago, I finally started getting more interested in these names. Mm-hmm. Um, the first ones I knew was maybe uh, Patrick Chavelle, the French photographer. He's got a really nice book uh, called War Reporter. I don't think it came out in English, though. It came out in French. I know it's in Czech. Um, then James Nachtway. James Nachtway is a brilliant photographer. He's got a really nice movie out as well called War Photographer. But if oh. you're going to watch that movie, make make sure you've got nothing going on for the rest of the day because it just it's a gutting movie, man. Okay. Yeah, no, I've come across it multiple times, actually. It's really good. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. And, the, and then I finally got more interested in people like Salgado and McCullen. And those, these two names, those two guys are just on top of my list of like people I definitely need to meet. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> if you ever got that. <laughs> I could I could listen to McCullen talk for hours and hours, man. Right. Especially about his landscape photography, his landscape work nowadays, you know, when he takes the pictures of like just England, English landscape is beautiful. Not even his war photography, it's just his landscapes are just a beautiful work on their own. And then you can interject with your this is my Scotland landscape. They're beautiful. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would probably pick his brain on black and white uh, oh, printing sure. and enlarging because his his printing work. Like if you've ever seen his exhibition, you know what I'm talking about. His printing work is amazing. Every single exhibition he does, he prints those pictures himself. Wow. And they're just they're just gorgeous. Whenever you were shooting street in London, didn't you and Sean go out together and shoot together, or was it more like a solo thing? Oh yeah, all the time. Uh. 
together. Um, I did start solo, of course, and then I just started meeting more and more people. And through a friend, I was on Trafalgar Square, just taking pictures of random people, and I saw this guy with a cool camera. So, and he was talking to other two guys with cool cameras. So I just took their picture. So that's when I met Paul, a friend of mine from London. And through him, I met Sean, because Paul was like helping him out on a shoot one day. So that's how I met Sean. And since then, I've been going on and taking pictures with Sean almost on like a monthly basis, at least sometimes more often. I did. I do enjoy going out on my own and taking pictures, of course. Uh, Around London, especially, I just get on my bike and just ride wherever I want, take pictures, move somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, we shown it was definitely nice taking pictures because you help each other out with like seeing things that the other person doesn't see or, you know, like, oh, he's taking pictures here. That might be interesting. Or then he sees me taking pictures somewhere else. So you know, it's, it's nice to have that cooperation, first of all. And second of all, it's always safer to be into than just alone. Yeah. Damn, like, I've, been, uh... I've been attacked a couple of times and it's oh, always really? nice to have someone watching your back. Uh, in London, in London, in Dover, uh, in London, it was one homeless lady just attacked me, like started punching me in the head because I was aiming the camera in her general vicinity. She wasn't even oh framed; she was just probably off her yeah. face with crack or whatever. And then another time, I did a story on the Southbank skate park in London, which has got the history going on like fifty years in the past. Yeah. And I was always pretty welcome there. And people, you know, didn't mind me just taking their pictures. And I got some really nice shots there. Like that place was a gold mine for pictures, especially during sunsets. Uh, but in my last like a month or two in London, those people got super aggressive and just wow. hated people taking their pictures. And that, that, you know, when you're there taking pictures and someone just starts attacking you, like, get the fuck out of here. It's nice to have someone next to you to just yeah. you know, walk your back and you know, it's a bit safer. Especially when we started taking pictures in more dodgy areas. Yeah, I heard a. I mean, also like skate culture is one of those like niche cultures where it's like if you're not part of it and you're like a poser outsider, then they yeah frown yeah. upon you because I mean, that happened I, to me too. <laughs> I definitely met some nice guys there. There was one guy I met. We got to chatting for like an hour just about his life, my life, and everything. And yeah, I was taking some pictures during that and it was really nice. But then there were definitely days when there were just aggressive people. It, it depends yeah. on who you just bump into, who's there on that day. You know, you get people who just absolutely hate anyone, any outsiders, even though I technically wouldn't call myself an outsider because I've been going to that skate park for five years, like consistently taking pictures. I actually did a whole article on them just to help them out with the petition they had because they were about to close the skate park and build a Starbucks in there. Oh, wow. And the petition eventually worked. But yeah, they just didn't believe me that I was, you know, going there all, you know, all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they were getting aggressive in the end. And then I moved out of London and now it's not my problem. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the podcast is named, Do You Like Ice Cream? <laughs> so do you like ice cream? And oh, don't tell me about ice flavor? cream. Don't tell me about ice cream. We're on keto right now, man. (laughs) (laughs) I've been eating vegetables for the last month. I need an ice cream with a cone with a chocolate on the bottom. (laughs) Uh, My favorite flavor? um, Chocolate, 
lemon sorbet and pistachio. These wow, three are my go-tos. Always go-to. <laughs> Whichever combination. And it's always in that big, sweet uh, wafer cone. Yeah. You can't do it with any other way. <laughs> yeah. And I gotta say, the best ice cream I ever had was probably Greece. There's this island called Borosh. It's okay. on the Peloponnesian, well, next to the Peloponnesian yep. Peninsula, close to, well, about two hours from Sparta. And that ice cream okay. there was just glorious. It was amazing. I'll put that on my list. <laughs> you know I will. <laughs> I mean, I asked for a scoop. They gave, they gave me like a whole fucking dinner of pistachio <laughs> ice cream. We couldn't even finish it because our boat was coming and it wouldn't let us in with the ice cream. Oh, it no. broke my heart, man. But I had a lot Aww. of it. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that's all the questions I had for you. Uh, all right, then. Is there anything you'd like to add or, or talk about? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's another thing. I'll, yeah. Uh, I got two cats recently. And one's called Fuji and the other one's <laughs> called Film. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd let uh-huh. you know because, you know, it's so ridiculous that I just like telling people. <laughs> and I'm not even that like that much of a Fujifilm maniac. I just the camera just worked perfectly for me. No other camera does that for me. I've been using Fuji for the last five or six years. Not even sponsored by them. I just buy everything myself. But yeah. <laughs> That's why I got two cats and we were just thinking of like what are we gonna call them? Like Bat and Man or Bruce and Wayne? but yeah we just decided with fuji and film well at least you know where your brand is (laughs) (laughs) all right man i'll see if i can send you the recording or the link to download it or something okay yeah definitely then uh i will probably see you very soon on your live stream (laughs) yeah possibly yeah all right okay ciao bye this episode was made using buzzsprout where you can host all your podcast needs and go ahead and follow Andre Vacek on Instagram. Follow him on Facebook. Check out his war stories. Uh, he's an amazing photographer. I'm so honored to have been able to talk to him about his work in photography and just his life in general. He's a super cool dude. So go check him out.